like a key difference between Jewish and Christian worship is the Jewish community in worshiping is asking God to redeem Israel as a people, to come and rule and reign and hopeful for the day when a Messiah will come. Christian worship is bearing testimony and praising God for the Messiah, Jesus, who has come to redeem all who would call upon his name. Welcome to A Jew and a Gentile Discuss. I'm your co-host, Carly Berna. And I'm Ezra Benjamin. We are a Jew and a Gentile who both believe in Jesus and believe that there's value in looking at history as well as today's world in the headlines through both a Jewish and a Christian lens. Today, we're going to talk about a topic that you're probably familiar with, which is worship. But we're going to talk about Christian worship, Jewish worship, some of the differences and similarities, uh, and kind of dig into the details. So let's discuss. Great. Well, Carly, we're tackling kind of an elephant here. And how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? In in Judaism, you don't eat elephants because elephants aren't kosher. But that's a story for another day. Listen to our episode on kosher foods. Anyway, the concept here is we're not going to try to do in in the 30 minutes or so we have today this exhaustive theological discourse on worship as a concept. But we do want to, as you said, Carly, kind of tackle what are some what's some Jewish thinking on the idea of worship? And what's some Christian thinking and what did those things have to do together? And today, for specifically Jewish people who do believe that Jesus, Yeshua in Hebrew is the Messiah, what does that look like? Is it a, is it a hybrid? Is it the Toyota Prius of worship models? Uh, how, do you, how do you incorporate the best of your Jewish identity into your worship of Jesus as the Messiah? And as a Christian, how do you kind of get in touch with what the original idea in the Jewish scriptures or in the Christian world, we would say the Old Testament, what was God's prescription for worship? And what on earth does that have to do with me as a Christian today in the 21st century, trying to figure out how to worship God in a way that's pleasing to him? So let's dive in. And first of all, I mean, we could answer this a hundred different ways, but some thoughts, Carly, what is worship anyway? What do we mean by that? Yeah, I think, you know, as Christians, the word worship is usually, um, people think about music, you know, worship music. But when I was thinking about the definition of worship, I thought, well, let's see what the the dictionary definition of worship says. And according to Webster, it says to honor or show reverence to a divine being or supernatural power, or to regard with great or extravagant respect, honor or devotion. So the idea of worship is to honor, you know, whatever the uh, the idol or wherever your worship is directed. So from a kind of a Christian worldview, worship is really the intent is to honor or praise the Lord. So that can be done through music, uh, but of course it can also be done through work or, you know, whatever you're doing, as long as, you know, what you're doing, the intent of worship is to honor and praise God. Right. And, you know, I, I read in this in this great book called The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. I know you've read that also, Carly. John Mark Comer, the author, says worship is the thing which has our attention. And that's both an, an empowering way to think about worship, an enlightening way, we can say. And it's also kind of a convicting way, isn't it? Because I find myself then asking, well, what what am I paying attention to? What captivates my attention and my focus? or what things other than the Lord who I'm supposed to be worshiping. So, uh, yeah, that idea of first turning our attention towards him so we can honor and praise him. And that that's a good kind of foundational, foundational working definition we can use today of worship. So where then uh, do we see 
worship in the Bible? Where's one of the first instances, if not the first instance of the concept of, of worship? Yeah, it's interesting that you said that about, you know, where is our attention? I was reading a book by Robbie Castleman, and he talks about how one of the first instances of worship in the Bible is probably somewhere you haven't or aren't thinking of, which is when the first murder in the Bible happened. And he argues that it's because it was a worship war. It's Cain and Abel. They're presenting their offerings to the Lord. God preferred Abel's offering and Cain gets angry. Cain responds by saying in Genesis 4, 13 to 14, Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. So you can see by Cain's response that he's making it all about him instead of all about God. So it's really the heart of worship and his attention is on himself. Like you just said, it's where we have our attention. So really the first murder in the Bible, Robbie Castleman is arguing, is because of a worship war. Cain is focused on himself instead of focused on the Lord. So again, it's about, you know, where is our attention? With what are we doing our actions and, and performing and, and our behavior? Are we honoring ourselves or are we honoring God? Right. Is it you, 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 Lord, or is it me, I, we? And I think, Carly, you know, somebody might say kind of devil's advocate, no pun intended here. Well, Christians sing a lot about I, we, me. The way that maybe that's appropriately happening is I, we, me in relationship to what God has done for me, us, our group. So, and that's the idea of testimony in worship, right? We're testifying to what God has done for us, not just who we are apart from him, but who we were apart from him until he broke in and, you know, in his grace and mercy transformed our lives. So, but more on, more on that later. So Carly, give us some words. And I think there's actually probably seven or eight that we could talk about, but give us two highlights in terms of Hebrew words relating to worship. Some might think that there must be, you know, there's one worship in English, worship, worship, worship. So there's got to be only one word in Hebrew, but actually there's a few words. What are some examples? Yeah. So Ezra, I'll say these and then I'll let you, you know, get your saliva going and correct me. Um, <laughs> but the first one, I think it's pronounced Shaka. Is that right? Uh, well, I'm going to I'm going to throw in a little phlegm here, you know, as a, as a good uh, Jewish man. Here it is. Shaka way deep down in the throat. Shaka. But but you got it. Shaka can work, too. <laughs> yeah. So this word was used 172 times in the Bible. And it means bowing down to God and changing your posture. Many different verses, especially in Genesis, you know, bowing down, facing God, etc. You can, you know, look up all 172 examples if you want. But really that change in posture is what I think is so important. Again, where we're putting our attention, where we're putting our posture, are we posturing to the Lord, um, etc. So the second word I don't think there's phlegm involved here, but zamar, is that right? Yes, that's right. That's right. This word is used 45 times in the Bible, and this is more of the worship that people are used to. This is worship expressed as singing or making music. Again, you can look up all of these different examples in the Bible, but just for an example, in Judges 5.3, I will sing praise to the Lord. That word there is this word Zamar in 2 Samuel 22:50, and I will sing praises to your name, 1 Chronicles 16:9, sing praises to him, on and on and on. 
it's this idea of worship through music, which which definitely was important in the Bible. It uh, worship was expressed through music in lots of different ways. So, like you said, there's lots of different words that could be used in the Bible to express worship, but these are just two of them. Sure, and I'm thinking actually, Carly, of the Psalms. Right, we kind of have this very kind of Latin-sounding, fancy formal word, the Psalms. But in Hebrew, a psalm is a, a mesmor. And that comes from, you can hear the same zamar, mesmor. It's the same kind of Z-M-R, and I'm transliterating here from Hebrew consonants, Hebrew letters. But the root word there is the same. And the idea was because the Psalms were not read. You know, people in is the ancient Israelites, and and even more in, in more recent centuries, Jewish parents wouldn't necessarily teach their children the Psalms by memorizing uh, spoken word like a poem. It was passed down from gener- generation to generation as a song, as a mesmore, and so it was understood that the Psalms were worship, as you said, zamar worship expressed as singing or making music. And interestingly, you know, for those who live in North America, at least maybe you're thinking of, you know, Jewish friends or extended family, and maybe somebody, you know, from the Jewish community has a last name Zimmer or Zimmerman. It's the same, Zamar Zimmer. And it would tell you that some point, uh, way back historically, music was involved in that family's profession. Maybe they were even Levite or part of that priestly tribe. And so they, their job was to make music to the Lord. And so you end up with the name somebody whose job is to zamar, to worship through uh, through music. And then you can get the name Zimmer and some other kind of some other uh, variations there. But before we go too far down that road, Carly, these are Hebrew words, but let's talk specifically about a Christian worship history. So we understand the death, uh, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus, the Messiah, and the coming of the Holy Spirit. And we can say kind of this this rapid outbreak among Jewish and then non-Jewish followers of Jesus or the church, the ecclesia, body of believers worldwide, happens in the first century. And now it's almost 20 centuries old. But give us a brief history of worship in a Christian context, followers of Jesus. Yeah, and I'll just say this is very brief because worship history could be its own podcast. But as you mentioned, Ezra, the earliest worship was the Psalms. The Psalms are poetry, and you know they they were used um, as music, and so that's really the first and earliest form of. Christian worship when it comes to music. From there, there was some early Christian poets, um, Prudentius and Ambrose. They, you know, did a lot of different Christian poetry. That was kind of one of the earliest iterations. And then Christian worship then goes into hymns, what many who are listening who are from a more liturgical upbringing may be used to. Augustine was one of the earliest. And then Christian worship really evolved from there, from hymns to more traditional music, different denominations have their own offshoots, you know, of their flavor and style. I went to a college that was Church of Christ that doesn't use any instruments. Um, so it's all acapella. And I've then I've been to, you know, non-denominational churches that have very um, rock focused music. Um, but I think what's interesting about uh, worship as it's evolved is how the lyrics of Christian music has 
have changed over time. And I think it's important to pay attention to that. As you mentioned, there are some places in Christian music where we're talking about I and we and us that are okay, especially if we're repenting. But there is Christian music that has um, focused more on us, and it really should be more about God. Um, I actually wrote a paper a couple of years ago and going into the paper, I had a certain Christian artist that I loved. And by the end of the paper, I was listening to the lyrics of this Christian artist. And I was like, I just can't even listen to this anymore because I I was just so sensitive to the lyrics of Christian music. So I think it's it's interesting and it's challenging to think about, again, where's your attention? You're singing these Christian worship songs. You're just so used to it. Are they focused on God? Are they focused on us? I think that's why it's so great that we have the Psalms that we can go back to. Um, and they're, you know, of course, scripture really focused on God. So with any type of worship, it's where is our attention? Where is our posture? What are we focused on? Are we bringing glory to ourselves or are we bringing glory to God? So, you know, Christian worship has really evolved over time and it's up to us to continue to make sure that however we're worshiping, that the focus is on God and that we're honoring him by what we're doing. So Ezra, you know, that's just a really brief Christian worship history and everyone has their own upbringings and backgrounds and histories of that. But let's talk a little bit about Jewish worship. Um, I've been working at Jewish Voice now for eight years or so. And we often have, actually, I remember the first chapel that I ever attended and I came in and all of a sudden we were singing the Shema and we were pointing a certain direction and some people were like bowing and I was like, we were singing in Hebrew and I was like, oh my gosh, what did I get myself into here? It's like my first day. I was like, oh my gosh, I, I'm, I'm not sure what happened here. So, um, Tell me a little bit about, let's start with the, the bowing thing. Sure. Is that like common or is that just a Jewish voice thing? Is that a Jewish thing? What is that? It's definitely not just a Jewish voice thing. It is very much a Jewish thing. And what happened that first day that you kind of uh, walked into Jewish voice and said, oh, dear Lord, like what what is going on? What was going on was Jewish worship. And so what do I mean by that? And I think, it, you know, going back to the Shacha and the Zamar uh, words that you shared, we, we can, I think maybe in any religious context, but especially in modern days, as you mentioned, in the Christian context, when we hear the word worship, I think our minds tell us music, right? Worship, music. Or, you know, what part of the service are we in? Oh, we're in worship right now. And what does that mean? It's the part where there's instruments and there's singing and there's some melodic things happening. And then somehow at the end of the songs, worship ends and now you have the message but that's not actually the concept in Judaism because worship can be prostrating oneself before the Lord. It can be turning toward Jerusalem. It can be bowing down. It can be the repetitive bowing down known as, it's a Yiddish word actually, kind of a Germanic Russian language spoken by the Jewish communities for centuries living in Europe. And the word is daven. Somebody might say to another, some religiously observant Jewish person might say to a uh, might say to a friend, hey, are you going to daven today? And what they're saying is, are you going to worship? Are you going to pray? Because prayer is also worship in the Jewish context. But maybe if you've watched, you know, especially if you live in a major metropolis in North America where there's a larger Jewish community, maybe you've seen the uh, religious Jewish community. Maybe they've worn some white garment under black garments that has tassels on the four corners of it. Maybe you've seen people who don't shave the corners of their heads who are wearing large black hats. 
those people would come from an Orthodox or a very religiously observant Jewish Jewish uh, context, but maybe you've watched them pray and they're holding a book in their hands and they seem to be endlessly bowing uh, to whatever degree, maybe just kind of a slight wobble or maybe like full up and down like 90 degrees, 180 degrees, 90, 180, and you're going, wow, they either have serious ab muscles or, or something's wrong with them or I don't understand what they're doing. That also is known as davening or bowing in prayer. And the idea there, Carly, in Jewish worship is literally that shacha is when you worship God, you bow down to him. Why? Because he's holy. And so the context for Jewish worship has very much to do with the idea of the holiness of God, this God who said, I am that I am. And actually, for those who don't know, in, in the Christian context, we sort of have various ways. Maybe one is Jehovah, and there's other things, other ways to say that. But this idea in Hebrew of yud heh vav heh or the tetragrammaton, that's a really fancy way to refer to the way God introduced himself to Moses. He says, Moses, I'm going to use you to deliver my people from slavery in Egypt. And you're going to go to Pharaoh and you're going to say, let my people go so that they may worship me. So right there in Exodus, you have, you understand that the, the the motivation of God, other than that he's a promise-keeping God and is going to keep his promise to the forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to bring them back up into the land of Canaan, the promised land, after being uh, for hundreds of years slaves in Egypt. The other motivation here of God is, let my people go so that they may worship me. So God's looking for a nation of worshipers. And Moses says, okay, I'll do it. But when Pharaoh asks me, who sent you? He says, right, whom shall I say sent me? And God says, I am that I am. Or in essence, you'll say the I am sent you. My name is that I exist by myself. I am because I am. I am that I am. So right there in God preparing a people whom he would deliver to be worshipers of himself, you have the idea of a holy God, one dwelling kind of in inapproachable light. And Moses asks, show me your glory. But God has to cover him in the cleft of the rock because if he beholds God, as God truly is, he'll, he won't be able to live. No one has seen God and lived and survived, so to speak. Uh, more on that in another episode. But this idea, kind of getting back on the highway here of, of the question of what is Jewish worship, is the idea of the holiness of God. And so when you see Jewish people bowing down repeatedly, the idea, one, is to kind of engage in the intensity of the moment right? If I'm bowing, then I'm not daydreaming. If I'm bowing, then I'm engaging with the one to whom I'm giving my attention, the one whom I'm worshiping. If I'm bowing, I'm recognizing the holiness of the one I'm worshiping. And what's, what's in the book that the Jewish people you may have in your mind's eye are holding while they're bowing down, and it's actually, in most cases, in Hebrew, for those who have learned to pray in Hebrew or speak Hebrew, or translated into the kind of language of the culture in the context of North America into English, it's called a siddur. And that word there relates to the idea, if you're in Israel and you say, how are you doing or how is it? Somebody would say, beseder, beseder. And the idea is it's in order. And so a Jewish prayer book is called a siddur because similar to the Christian context, Carly, it's actually the order of prayer. Right There's the Book of Common Prayer for those who maybe come from a more liturgical or high church background who are listening to this podcast. So the Jewish Siddur is almost like the Jewish version of the Book of Common Prayer. 
It's the set of prayers that are said either once or twice a day that include that prayer you mentioned called the Shema, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, uh, from the Torah, from the first five books of the Bible. And, and the idea there is that all Jewish people, wherever we are on the earth, have this set of prayers, most of which come right out of promises of Scripture in the Torah and the prophets, uh, and that we can pray these morning, noon, and night together, the same prayers prayed by millions of Jewish people a day around the world until God redeems our people. And so kind of continuing down this road, the other concept there that uh, maybe is different than Christian worship in, in the most general way we can define it is that within Jewish worship, well, let me say, let me go backwards. Within Christian worship, right, is this idea of personal redemption, right? God, thank you for saving me. You brought me out of the miry clay. I once was lost and now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. And there's an idea of asking God to redeem and thanking him for redemption. In Jewish prayer and Jewish worship, it's not primarily an individual redemption or salvation. It's a collective redemption and salvation of our people as a whole. Save us, we pray, Lord. Deliver us from the places where you've scattered us. Bring us a redeemer. Bring us, bring the days of the Messiah speedily and soon. Reign over us soon and forever. I'm naming some prayers that I'm not just making up here. They're in that siddur. They're in that Jewish prayer book. When the Lord brought back the captives of of Judah or of Zion, we were like men who dream. And so you see the idea there of this corporate expectation and faith of redemption. Now, a key point I want to make here is for the majority of the Jewish community worldwide, that redemption, which is understood to come in the days of the Messiah, hasn't yet come. We're still waiting for a redeemer. We're still waiting for a savior. We're still waiting for a Messiah. For those of us, including me, who identify as Jewish believers in Jesus or Messianic Jews, we believe that the Messiah has come and that his name is Jesus, or in his original Hebrew name that his parents named him and everybody called him when he walked on earth, Yeshua. And that word relates to the root word Yeshua, which in Hebrew is salvation. And so for those of us as Jewish believers who are worshiping Jesus, worshiping Yeshua, our Jewish Messiah, we are thanking, we're both expecting God one day to redeem all Israel, as Paul says in Romans 11, and so all Israel shall be saved, but we're also thanking him that he's redeemed not only us as individuals, but continues in greater measure to redeem a remnant of Israel. Though we've turned away from him in our stubbornness and our hard-heartedness, God, by his grace, removes the scales off of our eyes to behold the Messiah, Jesus, as he truly is, as he was sent to us from the Father in heaven in the fullness of time. And so we're worshiping God and we're, we're thanking him, we're praising him that he has seen fit in his mercy and in his covenant-keeping faithfulness to, to bring us the Messiah, not just in some obscure day in the future, but that the Messiah has come and indeed is coming again. And so the Messianic Jewish community in that way, Carly, joins the larger Jewish community in praying in the days of the Messiah. The key difference is we're not waiting for an unknown Messiah to one day come and redeem Israel. We're waiting for the known Messiah, the very the person of God revealed in the face of Jesus, to come back to Jerusalem as the King of kings and Lord of lords, reign on the throne of David. Uh, bring all Israel to himself as fountains of grace and supplication, like Zechariah 14 says, are open for the house of Israel and bring a remnant or, or a, a, a body of worshipers from every tribe, tongue and nation on earth.
to worship him. So I just said a lot of mouthfuls there, but this idea of corporate redemption, worshiping a holy God. The the third thing I want to mention here, Carly, is this kind of mysterious idea in the Christian world of a temple, right? There was a temple in Jerusalem and there was a tabernacle in the wilderness and a tabernacle in Israel that David uh, brought up and and worshiped at in the city of David in Jerusalem before there was a permanent first and second temple. And this idea that in Jewish worship, worship centered around the manifest presence of God and his holiness in a physical location known as a tabernacle and a temple. But if you look at a picture of of, uh, Jerusalem today, you don't see a temple, do you? You see a Muslim shrine called the Dome of the Rock on the Temple Mount where a temple once stood. And so that's a problem in Jewish worship. So as you mentioned, Ezra, there there is no temple now. So when or how did Jewish worship stop and then Christian worship just began? Right. And and part of what we're doing in this podcast, Carly, in so many of our episodes, probably in a way in every one of our episodes, is bridging the gap between this, this kind of false, unbridgeable gap, if we will, false chasm between the Christian world and the Jewish world. And never these two things shall meet. The Christians have their God, Jesus, and the Jews have their own path to salvation. No, 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 no. I'll say the idea, the fundamental principle in Judaism, in God delivering a people from Egypt to worship him. And Moses said it in Deuteronomy 18, 18, the Lord will raise up one who will come after me, who's greater than me, listen to him. And he's talking about the Messiah, who we understand to be Jesus. And and, and the idea there is that everything in Judaism, the sacrificial system, right, which required the shedding of blood, because without the shedding of blood, the scripture says, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so this whole system that maybe weirds Christians out, but let me just give some context here, this system of bulls and goats and rams and doves and turtle doves and whatever a family could afford and these different animals that had to be sacrificced and and the blood actually and the flesh offered on the altar as an aroma to the Lord in the temple where he dwelt with the children of Israel. All of this is there has to be a way for sinful man to get to a place where he can come into communion and fellowship with a holy God. And it all pointed to the reality that the blood of bulls and goats could never, it could could deliver in that moment from sin, but it couldn't cleanse sin out of the sinner and it couldn't purify from an evil conscience. And so something more was needed. And you asked it in an interesting way. I want to highlight is when did Jewish worship stop and Christian worship start as though kind of there's been these two eras in history, right? The era of the Jews and the era of the church, which as we talk about in our show on replacement theology is not actually the case. I think what we're trying to get at is uh, this idea that a Christian system of worship among followers in Jesus who after the first century, really by the end of the first century, were predominantly Gentile, not Jewish, developed all these traditions, these songs, these books of common prayer, these these methods of worship that seem to divert, right, from the way that we see worship happening in the Old Testament. So what on earth happened? If the first followers of Jesus were Jewish and who were living and dying as Jewish men and women as believers in Jesus, then when did this system in Jerusalem of Jewish worship somehow become a problem? And it all centers around that same idea I mentioned a couple minutes ago, the temple. Because what we know is that in 70 AD, under Roman occupation and oppression, the the temple in Jerusalem, the second temple, uh, was destroyed. And so if the entire Jewish worship system 
as God prescribed it through Moses in the Torah, as confirmed by the prophets, centered around a physical dwelling place of God in Jerusalem, the place, the city he chose to put his name forever. And now all of a sudden, there's no temple, which means there's no altar, which means there can be no animal sacrifice system, which means the Levites are going to have a really hard time performing the Levitical priesthood. Now what do we do? That's the problem is the temple's gone. Yeah, Ezra, we actually get a lot of questions in the podcast inbox, and this is one of them, which is, okay, the temple's gone. How are Jewish people still you know, pra- practicing the sacrificial system like you just mentioned without that temple? Sure. And what's happened, it actually started in the first exile to Babylon. What we know is that Judah uh, and Benjamin and others living around Jerusalem, at that time known as the Southern Kingdom of Israel, right, in the 6th and 7th centuries BC, are exiled to Babylon for 70 years. And God says, I'm going to bring you back. But there was no temple in Babylon. There couldn't be because God said it needs to be in Jerusalem. That's where I've chosen to dwell with men forever. Okay, so put that in your back pocket for a minute. So for 70 years, for one extended generation, you have this this community of Jewish people living in exile saying, how do we worship if we don't have a temple to worship in? And out of that started and really after 70 AD, as Jewish people are scattered to the corners of the earth out of the land of Israel for for the better part of two millennia until we return in 18th, 19th, 20th centuries AD, uh, the rabbis had to further develop or, or answer this difficult question, how do we worship God if there's no temple to worship him at? And so out of that developed what we can call is the rabbinical Jewish worship model. And since we don't have a temple, we replace it with three things to speak in broad terms, good works, repentance, and prayer, or mitzvot is the word in Hebrew. It's a mitzvah. Maybe you've heard that, right? Like a bar mitzvah, a son of the commandments or a son of the good works prescribed by God. And so the rabbi said, yes, we don't have a temple. This is a problem, but God still called us as his chosen people. And we know he's chosen us forever. So the way that we get close to him without a temple, without a Levitical animal sacrifice system is by prayer, repentance, and good works. And so, so much of Jewish worship today, Carly, this is really where the difference comes in is We can't worship God at a temple in Jerusalem until the Messiah comes to redeem Israel and builds one. More on that in another episode. So we're going to do prayer. We're going to pray all the time. It's remember that book of prayer with the davening, the bowing, happening several times a day in religiously observant Jewish communities. We're going to do good works. We're going to do mitzvot. And we're going to be careful, especially around Jewish holidays like Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement and Rosh Hashanah, that whole season of fall feasts on the Jewish calendar, and also to a degree around Passover and some other fasts that happen throughout the Jewish year on the Jewish calendar, we're going to be careful to repent, to turn or return to the Lord, to reorient our hearts to the God who's holy, who's called us to be a holy people, uh, in hopes that he would receive us and write our names in the book of life. But the language I chose there wasn't by accident. It's in hopes, right? Because if we can't worship God in the way that the Torah prescribes, then what we have left apart from faith in Jesus in rabbinic Judaism is an intention and a desire and a hope. But so much of the Jewish community, to whatever degree, lives without the surety, the confidence that God actually has written our name in the Lamb's Book of Life, that we actually are reconciled to him, that he does see us as standing righteous before his eyes as a holy God, uh, looking at us as men and women who have made mistakes in our lives and who have fallen short 
of his glory. And so that's kind of the the rabbinical answer, but also the difficulty with Jewish worship as it exists today. And uh, if if our audience didn't know that if you don't have a Jewish background and you're listening and you see these men and women dressed in black and white, looking very devout, very committed, praying all the time, you see them bowing, you see them reading, so intent on worshiping God. And you say, wow, I wish I, I wish I was I had that holiness. That's not a bad thing to aspire to be dedicated to God with that kind of fervency. But keep in mind that all of that devotion in a rabbinic Jewish context only leads to a hope, not to a confidence. And so as you're as you're thinking about Jewish friends and family members, I want to encourage you, understand the hope that you have through faith in Jesus. It doesn't replace the Jewish system with some other system, like canceling Jewish worship and bringing in Christian worship. But as believers, if you don't have a Jewish background as Christians, and then for those of us who identify as Jewish believers, what we have is that confidence that through the blood of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, we've been brought near to God. No, there's not a temple standing in Jerusalem, but what we understand is that the Holy Spirit, as Yeshua promised before he ascended to be with the Father, would be poured out, would be manifested in our hearts, and that our own bodies now become a temple of the Holy Spirit. That's the confidence, that's the hope that we have as believers. So, Ezra, throughout this episode now, we've gone from talking about, you know, what's the original intent of worship, where is worship in the Bible, what's the Christian history of worship now, to what are some of the common Jewish worship practices. For those that clicked on this this podcast because the title was The Difference Between Jewish and Christian Worship, how would you answer that for the listener? What is the difference or the commonality between Jewish and Christian worship? Apart from the Jewish believing community, which to this day represents only a small minority of the larger Jewish community worldwide, apart from that confidence that Jesus is the promised Messiah, I think a key difference between Jewish and Christian worship is the Jewish community in worshiping is asking God to redeem Israel as a people, right? To come and rule and reign and hopeful for the day when a Messiah will come. Christian worship is bearing testimony and praising God for the Messiah, namely Jesus, who has come to redeem all who would call upon his name. And so that, that I think is a key difference. But in terms of similarities, you know, the passage I go to is, is actually in, in John or Yohanan, as his name would have been in Hebrew, the gospel, the good news, according to Yohanan. And he said in John 4, verses 22 to 24, you know this passage, but I just want to talk about it in a little bit different context here. It's Jesus encountering the Samaritan woman at the well. And the Samaritans were part Jewish and part Gentile by their heritage. And because of that mixed heritage, they were actually rejected by a lot of by the majority of the mainstream Jewish community in Judea in the Jerusalem area as kind of half-breeds who had no part with Israel because of the intermarriage, not only intermarriage, but also kind of commingling of different religious systems and ideas that were foreign to Judaism. And so there was both this kind of prejudice and in terms of mixing religious ideas, this righteous indignation against the Samaritan community. And so when, when the Samaritan woman encounters Jesus, she's thinking, I can see he's a rabbi, therefore he wants nothing to do with me. I have no part with the main part of Israel. 
and and maybe you know in talking about Jewish versus Christian worship today, our Christian audience is listening and going, "Wow, it's hard for me to see what part I actually have with the Commonwealth of Israel. What did you do, Jewish and Christian worship have anything to do with one another?" And so this woman reminds Jesus, if you will, "Hey, remember." You worship in Jerusalem and our fathers worshiped here on these mountains of Samaria. In essence, she's saying, you worship your way and I worship mine and we don't have much to do with each other. But listen to what Jesus says in verse 22 of chapter 4. He says, you Samaritans worship what you don't know, what you do not know. We, the Jews namely, worship what we do know for salvation. Yeshua is from the Jews. And yet, Jesus says in verse 23, a time is coming. And has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. And so Jesus is not canceling the idea that God will manifest his glory in the city of Jerusalem as the King of kings and Lord of lords. And all we have to do is open Revelation or look at some of the other prophecies of Isaiah and Jeremiah about the days to come, which we know according to the world history have not yet come when the manifest glory of God will return in the person of the Messiah, Jesus, to Jerusalem, which will be his capital from which he will rule and reign and his presence will dwell on earth. More on that in another episode. But what, what Jesus is saying here is individually, we need to recognize that there's another reality at work because in Jesus, by his death, and resurrection and in the fulfillment of his promise to those first Jewish believers in him as he goes to be with the Father. And we know that promise is fulfilled on Pentecost or that Shavuot on the Jewish calendar in the year of Jesus' resurrection and ascension. The promise of the Holy Spirit comes. And what that means is that the Spirit, the manifest presence of God, doesn't only dwell anymore in a temple in Jerusalem, which would some decades later cease to exist. It dwells in men whose bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit, that the manifest presence and glory of God on earth is actually brought to bear in followers of Yeshua who worship in spirit and in truth, Jewish and Gentile alike. Because in terms of the Holy Spirit coming and the manifest glory of God, making us worshipers in right standing with God, there's no difference between Jew and Gentile. All have sinned, all have gone out of the way, all of us have corrupted us, and all of us are redeemed freely by the blood of the Lamb. And if we receive that invitation and invite him, filled with the Holy Spirit and our bodies are made a temple of the living God. And that's what Jesus is saying. It's not about a mountain, it's about spirit and in truth. And I've come today to fulfill that promise for Israel and for you. I think that's such a great way to end this podcast as we encourage both our Gentile Christian listeners and Jewish believers in Jesus that we worship together. And as this verse says, worship together in spirit and in truth. So it's about what has your attention? What are you postured towards? And I think that's our challenge for this week is, you know, think about as you go throughout your day, how are you posturing yourself? What has your attention? What words are you saying? What music are you listening to? Um, you know, wh where are you focusing? Is it on the Lord or is it on yourself? So thanks again for listening to another episode. We talk about this on each episode, but if you want to support Israel and the Jewish people, you can do that by supporting this podcast. One of the ways that you can do that is by entering into the monthly coffee giveaway that we're doing right now. You can do that by texting JG to 474747. And we're giving away one free bag of our Lost Tribes 
Coffee Co. Coffee, uh, which comes directly from one of the areas that we minister to, which is Ethiopia. You can also get that coffee on our website at a Jew and a Gentile discuss.org. You can have it delivered to your door as often as you'd like. So we'd love for you to support us by donating to this podcast to continue keeping the content up. And we really appreciate that. So thanks again for listening. If you want to hear more episodes of this podcast, subscribe to wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love if you leave us a review or a comment, share this podcast with someone you know. You can also follow with us and engage with us on social media at the handle A Jew and a Gentile Discuss where you can enter anything that you want us to talk about or any questions that you have. Um, Again, thanks for listening and join us next week for another episode. The show is a production of Jewish Voice Ministries International. 